0: Hello, this is Mike Van Meter. Welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. I want to thank you for joining me, and you can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. And this episode is sponsored by FHE Health, a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. Take the first steps to a better life today by visiting fhehealth.com. And today, we have an old friend of mine, Susanna Hasnay, and uh, Susanna was an instructor along with me down at the FBI Academy when I taught a number of courses, Um, but the one that I talk about the most for this program is the one called Leading at Risk Employees, which dealt with um, substance abuse, alcohol, PTSD, suicide, family violence, all that good stuff. And we we talked about that with police executives down at the Academy. But Susanna was also an instructor along with me, and you're going to get to meet her today and hear about all the great work that she is doing, has done, and um, you know the work that she did at the FBI Academy. But I don't want you to panic. It's not just about the FBI Academy. A lot of her principles, mm-hmm. in fact, all of her principles have application to all of us in our daily lives. And so with that, Susanna, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Mike. It's great to be here, and thanks for inviting me. And for all of you who are listening or have listened to uh, Mike's wonderful podcast, I want to say this. I'm gonna I'm gonna embarrass him for a little bit here, but he's a <laughs> tremendously yes, a tremendously talented instructor, and it was a pleasure to work with him for the several years that we did. I think it was like five years or so, Mike, at, at uh, the FBI Academy, and and I think. Um, Uh aside from this wonderful work that he's doing, first of all, it's not surprising that he's doing this great work in this this podcast, but he's like as honest as they come and is definitely candid, that's for sure. And uh just a really good human. So I I just wanted to say that, Mike, because it's true. Oh, and um
0: wait a minute. I didn't even ask you to say that. Normally I have to ask you to say nice things about me and I didn't even ask you.
1: No, not at all. So there's a first for everything, Mike. First for everything. (laughs) Well, yeah, thank, thank you again. And I, I am a retired agent and I retired after about 20 plus years, a little bit over 20 years. And I currently have my own business. It's called Police Spirit. And I can tell you a bit about that later. But I also work for a company called Eagle Security Group, and they're based out of Fredericksburg, Virginia. And what they do is they contract me back um, to the FBI Critical Incident Response Group Crisis Management Unit. And um, there's kind of a history behind that as well, which I'll, which I'll mention, which is kind of the foundation for what I do today. And uh, my main focus with both um, my company, Police Spirit, and as an FBI contractor with our Critical Incident Response Group is, is training in resilience for law enforcement officers training and resilience what i mean by that is uh growth mindset mindfulness uh and and human performance it's like how do we not only be better law enforcement officers but how do we have a fuller richer life right just overall how we all want to be hopefully we all want to be better human beings and we're all a work in progress and uh we actually have to to work at that sometimes and i primarily work with law enforcement um, but not always. I mean, I have worked outside the law enforcement world as well, because as, as Mike just said, the the premise of this conversation and and uh, what I do is uh, is kind of across the board, you know. And for the FBI uh, specifically, at this point in my life, I work uh, with uh, primarily tactical operators and other mission critical teams uh, across the bureau, such as like you know evidence response teams and bomb techs, and crisis negotiators, and the like, and I have to say this is I absolutely love what I do. And I know you can all hear the passion in Mike's voice when he um, talks about uh, recovery and how he supports um, the education and the training in this area and his willingness to kind of put himself out there um, in in the area of recovery and tell you about his story as well, which is really important. And I just want to say, I'm really grateful. And I, I didn't, I wasn't always grateful. I think when I was younger, you, you sort of take things for granted. And once I got, you know, to be a little bit older in life, I'd be, I came, came to see things a little bit differently. And one thing is this, is that, you know, uh, I, I spent so much of my life, like running away from stress and, you know, uh, kind of quote unquote, dealing with trauma in unhealthy ways, because I was trying to run away from them. And I think that's human nature is that, Um, instead of, um, dare I say, embrace stress and trauma, which are part of the human experience. What we do is we, we, as, as one of my mentors out in Oregon, Rich Gerling, who I'll talk about a little bit says, is we, we tend to demonize stress and trauma. Um, and we can't, you know, we can't. And, um, so I want to tell you a little bit about how I got here and why I do what I do. And I think it, I think I should am I, I debated talking about this um, because it's a little odd, but I don't maybe it's not odd because it gives me it gives you a foundation of where where I came from and why I'm working in this resilience and mindfulness area now for law enforcement. but I had kind of an unusual law enforcement start I, I know Mike was in the military he was with you with MPD, right Mike so yeah much um, much police police in yep. DC. Mm-hmm before he, be- before he became an FBI agent. Well, I was a professional dancer. All right. So I, I have a, I was a ballet dancer, you know, all through my childhood. And I, I obviously to go on the professional side of dancing, I, I became very serious about it. And then I ended up getting a bachelor's degree in dance. So um, I remember telling my parents, um, you know, hey, ma, you know, I want to go get my degree in dance you know every parents dream right I get I get, I get a degree in dance and and she's like and my mother was from Austria from Vienna from Graz Austria actually and she had this really cute actually Austrian accent and she goes Susie like that she'd call me Susie and she goes Susie she said okay go ahead and uh, get your degree in dance um, but make sure that you get your master's in something practical and I Thank God for that because um, at the time I had no idea what she was talking about getting something practical um, But I'm glad I did and so my mom encouraged me supported me uh, to be a dancer and at the ripe old age of 24 years old After being beaten down burned out underweight uh, borderline anorexic um, pretty much a hot mess, you know, I uh, retired at the ripe old age of 24 and I did go on and get my master's, and I and I sort of threw the dart at the wall, and I thought, well, "What the hell am I going to get my master's in?" And, and so I, I threw a dart, and I went business. Okay, let's just do get a degree in business. And ironically, um, I was working uh, for the Ohio Ballet. I went. I got my undergrad at University of Akron, in Ohio, and I worked for the Ohio Ballet for a while. And uh, the for managing the, for director, for the corporation, you know, for 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 Ohio Ballet for that the, ohio ballet, the dance company oh okay. the dance company oh, wow. i worked yeah i worked at, yeah i was uh, i worked at, as an intern there and um so the director the managing director of the ohio ballet um happened to be a graduate of the university of wisconsin madison right and she knew i was you know i was done dancing and i was gonna go you know do what my mom said get something practical and she said how about you go to University of Wisconsin-Madison. There's this great profit, primarily arts administration. And I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever, Madison. She said, have you ever been to Madison? I said, no, like that. And and she's like, I don't know. She said, it's just this wonderful program, one of the best in the country, blah, blah, blah. So I said, okay. Uh, I had an internship with the Ohio Ballet. um, And the managing director at the time, she was a graduate of of University of Wisconsin-Madison. So she said, hey, have you ever thought about going to school in Madison? And I said, no, like not at all, right? Not, not even at all. And she said, no, this is amazing program in a school of business. It's for arts administration. So you're combining like your arts experience with you know with ballet, with business, all that kind of stuff. And I went, okay. So she kind of shamed me into going there. And I'm so glad she did because I did go to school there um and it was a wonderful experience my one of my favorite cities in the country is madison great school and then so i did i did what my parents said i got my master's and then i moved to cleveland so i told you i went to undergrad in university of akron and so i ended up moving back to cleveland and a few years later i ended up becoming a director of back in the day they called it corporate wellness i don't even know if they call it the same it's a little bit of an old term but back then they called it uh corporate wellness and so i became the director of of uh, corporate wellness for british petroleum bp america and then bp oil it was a wonderful job i mean i loved that job i mean i thrived in it because it brought the physicality in it which i was a dancer i was kind of an athlete my whole life i was i loved to to move my whole life and so it brought the physicality it brought um the physiology piece that i had taken away from my ballet training and my degree and so um i did that and but here's here's the other side to it back when i was around 10-ish years old i don't remember exactly but right around 10 years old i remember telling my mom i wanted to be in the fbi and of course she thought i'd lost my mind right but it like it came out of left field but that was always in my head even though i didn't really pursue it all right So there's a reason I'm telling you that. So I moved to Cleveland after grad school. And eventually, like I said, I worked for uh, British Petroleum. And because I couldn't dance anymore, I wanted to find some other physical outlet. And I always loved to run. So I started running, you know. And so I joined a running group like a lot of people do. And lo and behold, there were a few FBI agents in the group. And I um, ran races with them. And I trained with a couple of guys, blah, 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 right? So then... One time, um, after a race, uh, we were we were you know having a little party after the after the race, and one of the agents said, "Hey, did you ever think about being in the FBI?" And I said, "I got to tell you this story." So I told him about my childhood interests that I had pretty much put in the back of my mind, you know, uh, over a decade before that, right? Or uh, so he said. Well, why don't you do it? Let's try it, you know. So, long story longer. Anyway, I become a new agent. I get in, you know, and um. I am all excited. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit older. I'm in my early thirties at that point. And I get out in the field and I, w- I start at the Washington field office and, you know, I'm all full of piss and vinegar and I'm excited and I'm working hard and I'm, I'm trying to fit in because, you know, I'm coming from a dance world and like an arts world. And it was a little bit weird at the time because I, I almost felt embarrassed to say what I did before. Honestly, not almost, I was because there were so many like lawyers and military guys like Mike and cops and and, and so i felt who, who who the hell is this ex ballet dancer in here so that was kind of in my mind a lot early on in my career um, but i was i was i was doing all right i was holding my own and then i you know the, the, the stress started to build you know uh, as i got older and experienced more life and then was in this new world of law enforcement so the stress started to build and i was exposed to um, you know, bad things, you know, exposed to that there is evil in the world, right? And for my whole life, I always thought that being physical was enough for me to weather any storm. And what I mean by that is weather any stress, you know, process my stress and, and my and pressure and any kind of trauma in my life, that if I could just go run it out or lift it out or row it out or whatever, I'll be fine. And for my young life, you know, it, it was, frankly, it was, it, it was enough. On, until it wasn't, you know, until it wasn't. And um, by the time I was 36, um, I had gotten married to a wonderful man who's, uh, who's also a retired agent. And we, we transfer. we both got transferred to the Seattle office and we in our careers and both really into our work and um, doing our thing and hardcore trying to do the best we could. And um, it was a great life for a while. And we went we were, we went hiking up, up in Seattle. It's beautiful. We went hiking, cross country skiing and, you know, snowshoeing and all that kind of wonderful stuff. And it was a great life. I'm like, wow, is, how could I be this fortunate? Right. And, um, and then we ended up transferring to the critical incident response group, which ironically is where I work now, um, in the crisis management unit. And, um, we started to experience some difficulties. I mean, we were um, deployed a lot and we were deployed to different places a lot. We were apart a lot. And that, as everybody knows, that that takes its toll. And then we suffered uh, um, some losses um, with pregnancies. And we had an especially difficult one with a baby with Down syndrome and um, Uh, late late in my pregnancy and so that was in around 2006 and then um we decided to transfer to another field office and that was cleveland we went to back to cleveland which is where i had a tight circle of friends left over from back in the day when i worked for bp and we moved together obviously to, to cleveland and um our our difficulties in our marriage and the grief that we both felt um was really starting to build. And the interesting thing about um grief, Mike, and stress and trauma is that if you're always used to putting on a game face and you're always like positive and like I, I was kind of perky. <laughs> I'm kind of like a I, I always, I'm a kind of a jokester and I I, I really do feel I have a, I, I, I try to be and have a really positive outlook on life. And I love to have fun as everybody, as Mike knows me, I I, I really enjoy human connection. I love being That's around people. That's how I've always known I love,
0: Yeah. Just very, yes. very upbeat and positive.
1: I just, I I, 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 I just, I really love life, you know? And so the problem There is a problem with that. There's only a problem with that is when it becomes fake, when it becomes a way to numb what's happening to you and not not wanting anybody else to see it. Because, you know, and and as a dancer, you know, you take so many hits in terms of, this is when I started to become proud that I was a dancer, is when I started to see that discipline or that dance um, really Made me frankly take a beating. I was always told I wasn't good enough. I wasn't thin enough I wasn't pretty enough. I wasn't talented enough and all that kind of stuff So you always take a beat down and so you you can You either succumb to that or you or you really build on your resilience and you really kind of charge through and it really changes Your mindset because it's like damn it. I am good enough. I am talented. I'm gonna keep going forward but When, when I really started facing real, real struggle in my life, and that positivity and my resilience started taking a beating. And I was so I I was so confident myself that I could get through any storm, that I didn't know what to do when I was starting to lose control, you know, and so I, I started to feel ambivalent about my profession. I'm like all this time and all these years thinking about the FBI since I was a kid and then finally getting in, never, never even thinking I would, I started becoming ambivalent about what my, what I was doing in my profession. I, I didn't have the passion for it. I didn't, I was like, what the hell am I doing this for? I Meaning, I didn't have any real purpose that I thought anyway. Um, I felt like a bit of a failure. Because um, my personal life was falling apart and my professional life, I felt was falling apart. I wasn't who I was anymore. So, you know, I started to numb my pain, right? And I numbed it with, you know, the usual suspects, yes, you know, booze, men, you know. And then I even was using the thing I really love is exercise because anything in excess, you know, to numb, even something that's good like exercise is dysfunctional. And mm-hmm. so, although I wasn't an addict, in any of those areas it just it wasn't healthy and obviously it wasn't healthy and I started to pull away from the people I loved and, and my husband was was one of those people and uh so essentially my professional my personal life lives were collapsing at the same time and so perky positive fun loving Susanna it was like okay what in the hell am I going to do now so I tried to numb my emotions and as you know Mike and as anybody who's in, in who's listening to your program who's going through recovery, when you try to numb your pain and your sadness and your depression or whatever it is, what else do you numb love, joy, gratitude, you know appreciation mm-hmm. all of that gets numbed at the same time, right because neurobiologically that's just how we work, right You can't separate it out. So I knew that I didn't want to be that way anymore that much I knew i didn't I didn't really like myself a lot. I had no compassion for myself in fact, one of the things that we talk about a lot now with our tactical operators in our training, which I'll explain in a little bit is we talk about self-compassion, that that's really about acceptance of yourself, right. For who you are, um, in order to, to move forward, in order to, to really, um, be accountable for your actions, you have to be compassionate about yourself so you can do something about things you you're not happy with, you know? Um, so I, but I kept charging forward with my work, um, and and I, I fortunately had this tremendous group of friends that really supported me, and one really good girlfriend of mine um, uh, who lives uh, in Buffalo. She's a you know she's a she's a counselor, right? And I remember one time her coming to visit me and in uh, Cleveland, and she said, something's wrong. She knew something was wrong. She could see it. She could feel it. So it's people like that in our lives that when we when we push them away because we're embarrassed or fearful that they won't love us anymore because we're struggling. Those are the ones that are going to be your rocks, you know, your rocks. Um, so with that support and with counseling, I did go get, get some, you know, get some help, get some counseling. And and, and, and I, I want to say this, and I want to digress for a little bit for your listeners that, you know, when you go to a counselor, sometimes you pick one and that one is like, Oh God, what an ass. Like you don't even want to, it's like, it just, you don't click, you don't connect. So, uh, fear not just keep trying because you're going to find one that clicks with you. You know? So I, I just, some people get a bad taste because they have some counselor, counselor that doesn't work for them. And I want to say that they're out there for you. So I happened to, after several tries, I think three or four, I found somebody that was really helpful for me. And so I had good counseling. I had great supportive friends, um, and a couple really fortunate events in work. um, some work colleagues that really, really teach, you know, you love to teach, you should do it. So I ended up um, getting a, my uh, applying for a job at the National Academy where, where Mike just talked about where Mike worked. Um, and as I look back to, to that particular time when I got that job at the National Academy, that was in 2009. Um, my husband and I were already separated. We were going through a really difficult time. And so I was still reeling. I was still trying to from 2006 to 2009, it was uh, it was basically a hot mess for me. And I realized that coming to the National Academy and being an instructor was the first step for me to come back to myself, you know, and to be able to move forward with my life. And, and I remember, I distinctly remember this, my very first National Academy session was two, session 239. And I taught a class called Leadership Ethics and Decision Making when I first got there. And there was a one, uh, I, I, I believe he was a lieutenant. I don't remember qu- exactly, but uh, I believe he was a lieutenant. I had this little office. I had this little office, and Michael will remember this. It was an literally it was an old, I think, broom closet or something. I was going to say it, it was. It, it was looked a dis-
0: like a closet.
1: <laughs> it, was, it, it was. It was. It was disaster. I had a, like a a desk, a wooden desk from like I think nineteen fifty nine, and then I had a, a bookshelf and I had a, a filing cabinet behind me and a and a nice kind of comfy chair that I I think I stole from a conference room. I had it in my in my office for a student or a colleague to sit and chat. Right. So here comes this. Uh, This police, this student of mine, he knocks on my door frame. He goes, Hey, Suzanne, you got a minute? This is about six weeks into the 10 week um, Academy, National Academy. I go, Yeah, come on in. My very first session, he sits down in the chair and I say, What's up? You know, and he says, You know, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And I said, What do you mean? And he said, I don't know if I want to be a cop anymore. And in my mind, I'm like, What? And then he went on to kind of tell a story about some of the things he was going through at the time. And, you know, that um, particular student was really suffering and he was really struggling with a lot of things. He was struggling with his identity being wrapped up in being a police officer. He was, he was struggling with a difficult home life. He was struggling with the loss of passion and purpose. He couldn't remember why he became a cop in the first place. You know, and and I felt like I feel the same way. I felt the exact same way as that student did. And here's here's the here's something that I guess it's interesting but disturbing but not surprising um, is that after that session, that was in the fall of two thousand nine, I taught many many more sessions after that. And not not occasional sessions, but every single session I taught for National Academy, there was a student just like him that would. That would sit and say i don't want to do this anymore and i so for me it struck a light bulb it, or a light bulb turned on in my head that there's something happening here there's something happening here in policing where you know most all of us got into the professional law enforcement because either we had a higher calling we wanted to, we had a we had a purpose we wanted to give back whatever it was, but it was definitely something we chose that, you know, we're very lucky that most of us in law enforcement profession really love our jobs, despite um, the difficulties that come with it. But every single session there were students and these are command staff level people that were higher up in their organization saying, I don't want to do this anymore. The stress and trauma had taken their toll so much that they forgot the joy in their life. They've the joy that their profession gave them gives, gives and gave them. And they were, they were so focused in on what that, well, their, their body, their body and mind and spirit. And it had taken such it, the toll that this profession had on them was in their mind at the time, insurmountable. So I started to look at that, um, from a a viewpoint that we have to start talking about this in our leadership classes, because these are leaders that are struggling. Right. So um, I ended up teaching a course called enlightened leadership. And I also taught a course, um, a spirituality course for law enforcement that was started by the legendary Sam Feimster, who actually started this course back in the day. And after he retired, I ended up doing one of the blocks of the courses uh, about a year or two after he retired. And I started to talk about, um, from a leadership standpoint, I started talking about love, and joy, and compassion—compassion compassion for yourself because if you don't have it for yourself, you know, eventually you ain't going to have it for other people either. You know, it's it's, um, you know, stress and trauma are insidious and they they um, can really eat away. Stress and trauma can really eat away at our soul. And I ended up in 2015 making a cold call to one of my really, really good friends now. he was a lieutenant. His name was Rich Gerling, who I mentioned earlier. And he is a pioneer in mindfulness for law enforcement, resilience-based training, and primarily mindfulness for law enforcement. And he is a lieutenant out in Hillsborough, PD in Oregon. And so we just had this amazingly wonderful conversation, never met him. And I invited him to the National Academy. That was in 2015. And he did a block, first ever block at National Academy on mindfulness. Um, and resilience, and he has since become my teacher, my mentor, and I. Uh, I went through a peer coach training for law enforcement with him just a couple years ago. So after the National Academy, so I kept on with this course, this course of study, and course of teaching. And I took a real like, I, this is what I want to do after I retire. I was getting pretty close to retirement; I had about three years left. And so after National Academy, I went back to the Critical Incident Response Group. Okay, so this is, you know, this is ten a decade after right. I'd first been there. And I was very lucky to have this awesome unit chief. His name was Mike Hartnett. I want to give him a shout out to one of my favorite ever in the Bureau. And he was real supportive of the stuff, you know, I was talking about with um, resilience and spirituality and mindfulness. And it was very applicable to, obviously, to Critical Incident Response, Right. So about two to three weeks before I retired, he, my boss, Mike Hartnett, calls me into his office and he goes, hey, we'd like to offer you a contract, a full-time contract to work with crisis management unit. And this would be doing more command and control and command post operations. And I, and I, and I just said no, because I was, I was moving on with my life. I said no. And he goes, we thought you'd say that. It, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing, trying to remember what he said, but he said, we thought you'd say that. He said, how about part-time? And I went. You know what? No, I, I, I'm. You know, I'm. I, I need to move on from the FBI. I need to kind of new chapter, et cetera, et cetera. He goes. He goes. You know all that stuff you talk about with resilience and mindfulness and spirituality. He goes and all that stuff. He goes. How about if part of what you do here involves that? And I said, deal. I'll do it. So that's how I came back to the FBI. And now I'm very, very fortunate. To be able in my retirement to be able to work with our primarily our, our mission critical teams, and actually um, go out and train with a small group of um, some current and some retired agents, and uh, Rich Garling comes out with us as well in a program called Peak, and it's the whole program is geared for kind of pre-incident prehabilitative kind of readiness for a critical incident but it, but it also translates into post critical incident as well because it's all a conversation about the science behind re- the, the training is all about a, a conversation about the science behind resilience the science behind uh, mindfulness mindfulness specifically for law enforcement it, you know mindfulness work is uh, and the only way I could put it is that it's kind of built for law enforcement, and mindfulness gets a it gets a, it gets a kind of commercially kind of tone to it, which kind of uh, is kind of a little bit upsetting or a little annoying to me because mindfulness is really straightforward. Mindfulness is about being in the present moment, and so if you think about it, if you're under stress and trauma, and you you're not in the present moment. When you're numbing yourself with booze or sex or drugs or, or bad behavior or, or, or being a general asshole, if you're numbing yourself with, with, behave, with regrettable behavior, that's not being present. Being in the present moment actually makes you more accountable for your actions because you're paying attention to what you're doing. You're paying attention to what's happening to you so you can do something about it. You can make a decision about your life because you're present for it. Because it's you're sitting, as my my friend Richard Gerling says, which I love how he says this, he says, you're sitting with your own suffering. You're embracing, frankly, he puts it this way. I think, I I don't want to misquote him, but he says, you're embracing your own bullshit. You're kind of sitting with it and you're dealing with it. You're not running away from it, for lack of a better word. So I'm really, really fortunate to be able to do that kind of training now. And we've worked with, myself and my the, the team of guys that I work with who all have either neuroscience background physiology or, or um, had some kind of leadership role in the military we go down the road and we, we literally sit with our tactical operators and we'll talk about mindfulness and we'll talk about joy and we'll talk about vulnerability and shame and grief and all and, and we, we try to tailor make it for each team. Um, And we do the same thing for our evidence response teams, and we've actually worked with some, did some training for some leadership teams out in the field. And I personally have done some work with some local police departments, and I've spoken at police conferences. Before COVID, I I was on the road quite a bit, you know, speaking at police conferences about this area of um, training and education. And um, I do believe that you know, if, if you're talking about recovery, like recovery and resilience, they go hand in hand, right? They I mean, do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think they almost mean the same. And, and one thing I want to say about resilience and maybe, and and, and I, I hope you can kind of clarify this for the listeners. I don't think I'm going to get this out right, but when we, when we think of resilience, it's not about bouncing back. And that's a, that's a, that really gets my goat that's a real pet peeve of mine because first of all humans are dynamic and humans are constantly changing and trauma and cumulative stress changes you it changes your neurobiology it 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 it, it changes um you it changes we're dynamic I, i'm trying to get this out right we're dynamic individuals humans never ever ever stay the same so once a crisis hits you don't bounce back to what you were before. You're not a rubber band that goes right back to where you were before. Resilience is about adapting to that adversity. Basically, you know, again, embracing, nobody wants to embrace it. So it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but you know, that post-traumatic growth that we've heard um, in the last couple of years, that, that uh, term, which is a wonderful term. It expresses it exactly what resilience is. Post-traumatic growth, being better, dare I say, being better for the stress and trauma that you've been through.
0: Yeah, there are so many, um, and and I know that the the courses that you and I taught mm-hmm. were really intertwined at the academy. I taught leading at risk employees, and mm-hmm. and you did a lot with uh, wellness and and mm-hmm. resiliency and all of that because it it goes it goes hand in hand. And really, at the end of the day, when you get into recovery, what your you know when you get into like twelve step meetings and recovery meetings you know there's a, a misconception out there that recovery meetings get you to stop drinking that's that's not true at all you you stop mm-hmm. drinking by going through detox and uh, withdrawing and, and and weaning your way down and then you you finally get to the point where you stop drinking or drugging you know whatever your issue is what a 12-step mm-hmm. program does is it it trains you to not start drinking and drugging and that yeah. and that's a difference so when and you know, yes. how do the two combine well when you talk about resiliency, um, what happens in recovery like in my life I had to develop um, you, I call it recovery I call it 12step program. you might call it resiliency but in a lot of mm-hmm. ways it's it's the same concept because mm-hmm. what happens and this has happened I you know I'm at, at nine years now in, in recovery and and in those nine years I've, I've I've probably had worse things happen to me in recovery than I ever had. Uh, prior to recovery. Uh, deaths, uh, I've I've experienced suicides, I've experienced uh, losses of jobs, retirement, you know, all those big um, changes in your life, those stressful changes in your life, uh, it, all the other difficulties and traumas, but yet I've not mm-hmm. found the need to pick up a drink. Well, how is that? Well, it's mm-hmm. because I've developed um, in, in my world, the recovery program, but in your world, the resiliency program. I, yes. I've learned to mm-hmm. be more resilient, about the issues that were going on. And then realizing that uh, taking a drink, a drug, or you mentioned sex or gambling food, there's all kinds mm-hmm. of different things that mm-hmm. people can resort to. <clears throat> that will not, whatever the situation I have, will not be improved by picking up a drink. That will not he- help mm-hmm. the situation. You might feel good temporarily temporarily but uh, it certainly does not work out for you in, in the long run. So uh, what, let's talk about that a little bit more here, but I just did want to mm-hmm. um, throw in um, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by FHE Health. FHE Health has been providing life-changing behavioral health services for more than 20 years. They treat substance abuse and mental health disorders in an individualized and comprehensive approach. Recognize... Recognizing the specialized treatment needs of the first responder community, they've created Shatterproof, a dedicated program for law enforcement, fire rescue, and similar communities to receive treatment among peers. They're experienced in providing privacy and working with unions for employment. FHE Health is committed to providing the best care experience for our patients, for their families, and for our community. Learn more at FHEHealth.com. That's FHEHealth.com. Now, Susanna um, mm-hmm. Maybe elaborate on that a little bit more, because I, I agree with you. Um, recovery in my world is about being in the present, not catastrophizing mm-hmm. the, the the future, okay. meaning worrying about things that have not happened yet, and then not worrying about things that have already happened and you can't do anything about. Right, Because what right. we find is the majority of things that we worry about in the future that we think are going to happen never actually happen. And the problem yes, is, that I heard it I heard it said once, and this is going to be kind of crude, but this is the way that I heard it said. If I have one foot in yesterday and another foot in tomorrow, I'm pissing all over today. And I don't really live in <laughs> today. And, <laughs> I, and I like that. True. But um, maybe talk about that, that. And I loved how I our it. classes yeah. sort of... Um, uh, were interwoven at the academy. You know, it was uh, you and I used to joke about that all the time. Uh, you try to prevent the problem, and then I deal with them after the problem. Right. <laughs> so right exactly. You, so your class try to prevent them from coming to me. When you came to me, you've already yes. got the problem. But
1: they go together. Yes. 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 Exactly. Well, I think a um, couple things with that is, uh, I guess I kind of look at it this way is. I guess and recovery maybe is the same thing. I think we is is part of the part of the issue with recovery is control. And it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but we try to control things that we can't. And I think that's very much human nature. And when we when we we, we, we get caught up in a struggle to control, whether it's controlling um, how someone else feels about us, how um, how somebody uh, treats us, we, we we get so caught up, we get so spun up in how to what. Focusing on what we can control, what we what we what we fail to do, is look at what we can control in our lives, and what we can control in our lives is what's happening to us right now, and how we respond to our life, how we respond to stress and trauma, how we respond to um, those those things that come at us in life, and do I go for for a bottle of wine? Do I go for indiscriminate sex? Do I go for whatever behavior that ultimately down the line is, is not healthy for us? Or do I focus on what's happening to me right now and accepting the fact that um, I'm struggling? And I, and I think, especially in law enforcement to be able to, and not try to judge yourself and say, what a what a what a I am, or why do i feel this bad why do i feel this bad all these other guys seem to be handling all this stuff really well why am i the big failure in all this stuff we're trying to control things that we cannot control and so what we can control is how we respond to that stuff that's going to happen to us instead of run away from it sit with it and I, and i tell you i you know we're 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 a work in progress and we're never finished until the day we die i think and
0: Progress, progress rather than perfection, yep.
1: Yes, progress rather than than perfection. Everybody struggles. Everybody suffers. And and I think, and, and I'm just going to say this, and, and I think, I believe, having taught in this profession now for a decade is that we in policing and law enforcement, we, we're really good storytellers, as we know, right? And everybody um, has a story. And it's very powerful and it's, and it's courageous and it's brave to come forward and tell your story. And it's important to tell those stories. But, and I may add a but to that, but if we only tell stories about our struggle, there's going to be a now what factor. What do I do with all that? And that's the part where I am hoping, I think we are going in that direction of like, what, what do I do with all this now? What do I do with all that that I'm feeling right now? And the more we tell, the more we continue to tell these stories about what happened in our lives, like at police conferences, there's always somebody that comes up and is super brave and tells a really inspiring story about the struggles that he or she's been through and where they are now. Um, I found that sometimes uh, we listen to stories and we tend to compare our stories to their stories. And so I so what I'm trying to say is we listen to other law enforcement officer stories. And so what do we do? We say, well, my God, that's really bad. That's he really went through a lot. Mine wasn't so bad. So why do I feel this bad? Why do I feel this low? What is wrong with me that I feel this awful about what happened in my life, about this experience I'm having? To me, Mike, is not helpful. You know, we call it comparing
0: out. We call it comparing out. I'm not like in an AA meeting. I say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy, you know, or they're worse than me in it, in it. Right, it's irrelevant it's, because it's, it's irrelevant. that's their it's story. Helpful. It's their yes. We're all in different yes. places and we're all affected in different ways. We're we're both here. We're we're both here for the same reason. And what brought us here is largely irrelevant. How you got here is irrelevant to me. I am here. Um,
1: so exactly. So much. So much of the work that 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 I'm fortunate enough to be a part of is really working with your own struggles, working with your own stress, working with your own trauma. And really becoming, um, I would say, being comfortable sitting with that discomfort, being comfortable experiencing that that hurt and experiencing that really awful feeling that we are very good at running away from through booze and sex and all those other things that we talked about earlier. So I'm not sure if I answered your question. I probably didn't, but I, I wanted to make sure I mentioned that.
0: No, no, no. That's 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 mm. very good stuff. And <laughs> um I I really think that we had a. I would like to think that you and I had a really big impact on the law enforcement community because I know when I came in uh, into law enforcement, and that predates the my my experience with the FBI uh, back as a police officer. These types of issues were never talked about, never talked about. And and by the way, to a large extent, it's not even just law enforcement. I want to make it very clear that that this this discussion that we are having isn't even in the community really when you think about it because let's be honest yeah. you don't have to be a SWAT operator or a police officer or mm-hmm. a military member mm-hmm. to go through what we're talking about everybody mm-hmm. goes through stress everybody has trauma there's there's other, um, other professions that where people experience trauma as well or maybe you um, just through circumstances maybe uh, you had some family crisis a death in the family or you were just part of a traumatic event mm-hmm. a, a part of a Traumatic event or an accident, we all go through trauma. So the principles that we're talking about apply to everybody. They mm-hmm. really do, and this mm-hmm. is a, an important discussion for everybody to have because you you yes. have to build resilience. You know, um, I, I I tell people in the recovery world that you can't. You you have to build. Your, your program, you know, again, in my world, it's the recovery program or the, you know, if you want to call it the resiliency program, the term doesn't really matter. The fact is that yeah. you've got to train for that day, right? You know, they always say, um, you don't have to get ready if, you know, if if you stay ready, if you don't have to get ready, if you stay ready. And the the true test, the day that you have that crisis is not the day that you want to say to yourself, oh, I need to have a resiliency program. And I'll tell you, Susanna, yes. the, the case in point with me was when, Um, I was about six years into recovery, and I think you remember this. I think we were still working together at the time. Mm -hmm. I was in a pretty bad cycling accident where I ended up in the hospital for four days. And um, the problem with that is I had to have surgery and they had to medicate me. Well, I'm in recovery, so this this is a real issue, right? But I'd had about six years preparing for that day. That that was going to happen, and I'm you know I'm glad to say that I got through that successfully. I took the medication that I needed to take for uh, surgery and for the pain management afterwards, and then was able to get off of it because I built up the resilience. I built up my team. I had a team of people that were around me uh, to work with it, and that's that's another point too is that we get well and we stay well by working with other people. This is not something that you do alone, and and I was successful, but I. I'm glad mm-hmm. that I did that because I had built in, I knew that in my life, there was going to be something that was going to happen. And I had to have that plan in place before that day happened. And I think that's a lot of what you talk about as well.
1: Yes, 100%. And, and you know, when we, when we go out and talk to um, our mission critical teams, and when we start talking about mindfulness and, uh, you know, being in the present moment, we, and we practice meditation and, you know, we, we have a a yoga program that we, that we offer. And, you know, I I never would have thought, I never, ever, ever would have thought even five years ago that I would be doing this for the FBI so much as with um, our mission critical folks, you know, out out in the field. So it's amazing how far we've come. And frankly, it's about time because we know all this stuff is based in science. Everything that you talk about, Mike, with recovery, everything that I talk about in resilience, that everything is based in science. This is not about that, you know, that term touchy feely, you know, when you talk about compassion and love and joy and gratitude and mindfulness, all that touchy feely. I cannot stand that expression because it downgrades the power of what resilience really is it downgrades the power of what these skills can really help you with so and really make you a a better stronger uh, richer human and it allows you to have a better life whether you're a law enforcement officer no matter what profession that you have um stress and trauma are part of the human experience And so is love, and so is joy, and so is fun, and so is happiness, and everybody deserves that. Everybody deserves that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like like you mentioned, it it is affecting everybody, and it is not – I've heard that over the years, and I think that's why – Particularly military and and law enforcement people, it's hard to reach because it has that perception as being touchy feely. It is not that at all. Yes. Every single thing that mm-hmm. you were talking about is based in science. And you know, people I think left to their own devices are uh, figure that out. They they figure out that the concepts that we're talking about having a plan, having a um, developing your spiritual life, uh, mm-hmm. uh, taking care mm-hmm. of yourself, diet, exercise. Um, mm-hmm. Vitamins, minerals, getting enough sunlight—all of that uh, contributes to the, that feeling of wellness and, and resiliency. And this, it, this is not mm-hmm. touchy-feely stuff. It, it's out there. I, ironically, I—I um, I was talking to a gentleman last week um, who just got out of prison in Scotland, and um, he's recovering a drug addict. And he was—he we were talking, and he was telling me about all this stuff. He says, "Hey, mate, let me tell you, I—I uh, I figured this out and that out." And he's basically going through the same principles that you and I were talking about and um and it was through his his deep self-reflection while while he was in in prison and yeah he came to the same conclusions that you and i came to but you know uh Uh, what I said to him was, well, you know, a lot of the stuff is out there. You can, you can read it, you know, and that's what I think a lot of people don't understand is that you don't have to figure this out on your own. Um, This work that we are talking about, resiliency, recovery, wellness, um, taking care of yourself, diet, exercise. There is a lot of literature that's out there on this. And these are tried, true, true, proven And, uh, whether it's Susanna, myself, or someone in your agency or your organization or in your community, uh, reach out and get the help that you need because it, it is out there and you can get well, you can get well, but you have to want to get well. That's the key. There's nothing I can Mm -hmm. do for you if you are not willing to, to get well. And and that oftentimes is the, the case is that people just don't don't want to put their hand out to, and that's sometimes that's the hardest for people to do, particularly in our profession is ask for help. It's very hard to do.
1: Well, Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, I, I do want to say this too, kind of segueing off what you just said, but um, just because you, you, we, we really, well, just because we're having conversations about resilience and I'm talking, especially in law enforcement circles, but talking about resilience and recovery, and, and talking about mindfulness and compassion and yoga and all these kind of things that we never would have thought um, would have existed in our, in our conversations in law enforcement five years ago, um, it doesn't mean that that's the be-all, end-all, that that's going to cure you. I mean, there, there's so many other pieces that go with an overall sense of well-being, you know, from you know, getting, making sure you go to the doctor and getting, you know, getting checked out, getting your baseline checked out, you know, like, like you said, the reiterating what you said, the spiritual, the spiritual part of you, whatever that is, and it's different for everybody, you know, it could, mm-hmm. for some people it's religion. It's not for me, but it's, uh, it is religion for some people, for other people like myself, a spiritual, you know, event would be, going for a, a hike on Mount Rainier, you know, in, in, in the Pacific Northwest, something like that. It's something only you know what spirituality is for you, but it's a really powerful um, intervention tool, you know, and, and going to a counselor or, you know, and, and, and or having that your tribe, your support network of people who care about you. And I know that I was uh, not really good at asking for help, if you want to say, or asking for support from my friends because I didn't want to burden anybody, you know what I mean? So I had like, I could deal with it by myself, but I also want to say this with that is that, just because you're working towards something to be a better, fuller human being doesn't mean you're not going to have slip ups once in a while. Oh, no. And it doesn't, you know, and it's like, and it, it's like, I look at this and you know, like, like we were saying earlier, it's we're a work in progress. Right. And you know, I still can't get it right. And, but I always ask myself, what is right anyway? You know, I mean, only you, only yourself knows what is right for you and what you need to do, not what society or the culture tells you it sh- you should be. Um, and to me, it comes down to being a good human. Uh, you know, I read some article, I think it was like in Forbes or something like that. And they, they called, they had this this name for making mistakes and they called it an FHB, a fallible human being. And I always like that um, term because we're working toward being a good human being, but you're going to be fallible, and you're 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 going to have fits and starts in life, and being okay with that, and being okay to that to struggle once in a while. Be, it, it, suffering is a part of life, right? Um, there, you know, there was a. Th- this was a, a while ago. I saw an interview with Stephen Colbert, and he his. Uh, I believe it was his father and his sister. In fact, a few family members died in a plane crash. And I—I mean, to paraphrase what he said, but it stuck with me. He said, "Life is a gift, and with that gift comes suffering. That it comes—it's—it's it's part of your life. And so, how you respond to that will determine who you'll be on the other side. If that makes sense."
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I—I I, I absolutely agree with that. And we're not—we're not, we're not going to get away from that. It's how do we how do we deal with it and stay yeah. in the present. How do
1: we respond to it? How do we work with it? How do we stay present? How do we work with it um, in order to be better on the other side? You know, and that's that post-traumatic growth right there. Wow.
0: Well, fascinating mm-hmm. conversation, Suzanne, and I really appreciate you joining us today. I really do. Thanks Thank you for, so much, Mike. Out. Yeah. Well, guys. Yep, I miss seeing you. I miss I, seeing you the too. academy. I really, I, I really, <laughs> and um, so with it, with this, in COVID, a lot of times I'll, I'll do, uh, I want to do interviews in person, but unfortunately with COVID, we're, Uh, we're on the phone. So (laughs) we're using the technology to talk to one another, but it's always great to talk with you.
1: Yeah. Great to talk with you too, Mike. And uh, by the way, so
0: if for the listeners, if they want to get a hold of you and they want to get more information or or contact with contact you and have a conversation with you, how would they do that?
1: Um, You can, you can, I'll give you my email. It's uh, I'll spell it for you. Uh, It's Susanna Hasnay and it's S like Sierra, U Z like Zulu, a N November N A. So Susanna Hasney, H like Hotel, A S Sierra, N November A Y. Susanna Hasney at police spirit one word, dot com.
0: Oh, outstanding. And guys, this episode's been sponsored by FHE Health. According to SAMHSA, first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. Find out more at FHEHealth.com. That's fhe com. And guys, as always, I'd like to say I don't represent any group in particular. I do talk about groups, um, but I don't represent them. Just keep that in mind. I just talk about you know, what works for me or I've seen works for others. And the same is true with uh, Susanna. Um, so I don't represent anyone other than myself. My only purpose is, and Susanna's purpose is in giving this information is to share with you what we've done because it's helped us and maybe can help you too. So if we've said anything that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with, then just discard it, but try to take some information that you can use for yourself or maybe to help others as well. So that's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way and we try to impart that knowledge to others as well. So with that, please visit our Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, and our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. Let me know how I'm doing. Let me know if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing. I'd love to hear from you, and hey guys, we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot.